as an aunt by marriage to Edward VI and mother-in-law to Lady Catherine Grey, Anne Stanhope's life was filled with drama and intrigue. And today I am joined by Susan Higginbotham to talk about this fascinating woman. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on because you are here today to talk with us about somebody that is um, really a part of the history that I've been researching since I've been researching Thomas Seymour, but I really don't know very much about her. So I'm so excited to have you on to talk about this woman from Tudor history who has just left quite the reputation. Oh, yeah. And her reputation is rather Oh, undesirable, I would say. I would say part of it is deserved, but I think also she was a difficult woman in an era that wasn't particularly appreciative of difficult women. So, Well, and the, the one thing that always comes to mind is that Catherine Parr referred to her in a letter as, I think it was, that hell. And right. there were some people around Thomas Seymour even who mentioned after the death of Catherine Parr, that Anne didn't really have a problem with him, but more so with Catherine. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there was, of course, a rivalry between the two Seymour brothers, and and Seymour uh, was very loyal to her husband. But as I said, she also had a very strong, difficult personality. And for whatever reason, she and Catherine Parr did not seem to have gotten along pretty well. It may have dated back to the time when they were at court together. And certainly the Edward Seymour, the protector of Edward VI, took some rather greedy actions towards Catherine Parr. For instance, he appropriated her jewels after the death of Henry VIII. And whether Anne Seymour had something to do with that, I really don't know. Uh, she was accused at the time of having something to do with it. And certainly Catherine Parr seems to believe that a lot of the actions against her were instigated by Anne Seymour. So much drama, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I am curious, though, some of the stories that we hear about Anne Stanhope, I think, came about after her lifetime, did they not? Oh, uh, right. Uh, well, there's one contemporary chronicle. I'm sure you're familiar with the Chronicle of Henry VIII, um, it's the so-called Spanish Chronicle. And that's the famous account of uh, Anne actually physically shoving poor Catherine aside when they were at some sort of assembly together because Anne felt that she should have precedence. I think there is a bit of exaggeration in that. Anne had been at court since she was uh, probably a teenager. And while she may have been pushy, she wasn't stupid. And I think she would have realized that the queen had precedence over her. But I certainly think in their minds, I think that she may have thought that she deserved precedence over Catherine, but whether she actually was physically aggressive as to Chronicle and later Chronicles uh, assume, I don't think is all that likely. The Spanish Chronicle, which is the first chronicle to pick up on this, gets a lot of basic facts wrong. So I think they may have taken what was sort of a rivalry and basically uh, escalated that in the story that we see now. And I often wonder, too, how much of this had to do with just trying to dishonor the Seymour name after the execution of Thomas and Edward. There's always so much propaganda, isn't there? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> and there's people, there's basically two images of Edward Seymour. One is of the good duke, the man who is benevolent to the poor, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the other opposing side of the, uh, should I just say, the bad duke who was mean to the poor 
and who was and who was greedy and unscrupulous. Well, let's go back a little bit, because I, I know a lot of the listeners wanted to know a little bit more maybe about her upbringing. What can you tell us about maybe where she came from? Oh, she was the daughter of Edward Stanhope and his wife, Elizabeth Boucher. Her mother had been married several times, and she eventually married a man called, a man called. I want to say Richard Page. Oh, Richard Page. I'm sorry. Yeah, Richard Page. Uh, Richard Page was an official Henry VIII, and he was close to Anne Boleyn, but he also was active during Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and it's probably during during the uh, Catherine Aragon's queenship that Anne first came to court. She was one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies, and as far as I can tell, she pretty stayed at court. You know, for the rest, she served all six of the queens. Wow. I go, I don't know that I realized she was there for all six. I think there's so many of those women that maybe we don't hear about often enough. Yeah, there's a letter, I think, from Catherine of Aragon to her later in life, in which Catherine references her being one of her ladies. So she would have been at court quite a long time. And that's probably where she met her future husband, Edward Seymour, who, of course, was also at court during this time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. So this would have been, what are we talking, the 1520s? Uh, yes. Okay, so around the 1520s, they're both at court. They meet. I don't even remember off the top of my head exactly what year they married, but it was after Edward Seymour's first wife, Catherine Falal, passed right. away. And one of the aspersions against Anne is that she had something to do with the annulment of this marriage, but this seems quite unlikely. Um uh, she would have been probably quite young and not influential at the time that uh, that Seymour annulled the marriage to his first wife. Uh, apparently, he believed that his first wife had been adulterous. And again, you know, we, we don't know whether this happened or not. We do know that he thought that she had been an adulteress. Right. It makes for a good story either way. Yeah. <laughs> what did she have any part in disinheriting of his sons that we always hear that it was because of her? He disinherited his two sons with Catherine Falal. I haven't come across any evidence that she did. Now, obviously, it was in her interest to disinherit them because she had a large family, including sons of her own. Right. So certainly I don't think she would have opposed any of that. Okay. But whether she actually, you know, took the step herself, I tend to doubt. Um, but again, that's something that would have been to her advantage and to her son's advantage. And this was an era where, especially in terms in matters involving inheritance and land, people tend to be pretty ruthless. Right. And so that is certainly something I think she would have supported, regardless of whether she actually had a role. Yeah, I think anybody in that situation would have supported it. <laughs> I, I want to touch base a little bit on her association with Anne Askew. And I always like to debunk things if possible. And on Showtime's The Tudors, they showed Anne Askew, well, I think it was giving a gentleman a bag of gunpowder or something to throw on the flames when Anne was being burned at the stake. Do we know if there's any truth to that? I haven't found any evidence to support that. Uh, now, Anne Askew did say that she received some money. I believe it was 10 shillings from Anne Stanhope. So certainly she seems to have been sympathetic towards her plight, as were other ladies at court at times. So it would have been, you know, a fairly you know, dangerous thing for her and for the other ladies to do. But 
they got away with it, apparently. Do we know if we're going to, you know, let's stay on the, the topic of religion here. Do we know when Anne started practicing the reform religion? I'm fairly or- sure it was during it was during and my dates are getting fuzzy, but I believe it was when Henry VIII married to Catherine Parr. And of course, Catherine Parr herself was a sympathizer with the reform movement. And I think Anne, along with some of her other ladies, uh, joined in with that. Made me wonder if she started going down that path when she served Anne Boleyn, if that was a key moment maybe in her life to realize who knows right i'm i'm just speculating yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's certainly a valid speculation to me um because you know Anne was Anne Boleyn certainly was a persuasive persuasive person and a well educated person and i think Anne Stanhope was intellectually curious and i think she might have well you know picked up on her interest but again unfortunately there's no documentation uh, one of the things that is so frustrating about research this period is that there are just so many things about women's lives that just haven't been recorded. Mm. So we can only speculate, which is very annoying. Right. It's so difficult. And I think that was one of the reasons why when I picked somebody who I wanted to study, I went for a man because I knew there was going to be more evidence for me to follow. But there are so many interesting women in that time period that I just wish there were there was a, just a big box of secret documents somewhere <laughs> that told us everything <laughs> we ever wanted to know. <laughs> I keep thinking maybe, you know, they keep finding these things and, you know, these old English farmhouses or, you know, old country houses right. or castles. I think, well, there's got to be another cache of documents there somewhere. There, there's got to be. There's some. Yeah. yeah. Someday we'll find some more amazing stuff. I just hope it's in my lifetime that there's some really oh. big, <laughs> big finds. Well, let's talk about her marriage with Edward Seymour a little bit. They had a lot of children, didn't they? They did. And uh, one thing that was still somewhat uncommon was that they gave their daughters as well as their sons a classical education. In fact, I believe it was two or three of her girls actually, you know, published a book, which was, you know, later brought to the attention of other reformers and they themselves acquired a reputation as being, you know, intellectuals of the time. Yeah, it's funny. I just recently did a video for my patrons on Patreon about their daughter, Anne. So I think it was Anne and her sisters, Margaret and Jane, were considered poets, maybe is what they would call them back then. And I I think that's so amazing when you look at the Seymour family. In a whole, if you go back, let's just even go back to John and Marjorie Seymour, Edward and Thomas's and Jane's parents and how far that family came by the time it came to the family of Edward Seymour and Anne Stanhope. I mean, Jane Seymour, you know, the queen consort, she didn't have the education that her nieces had by any means. No, certainly not. (laughs) No, they were very privileged. I mean, they were considered royalty, weren't they? Basically, you know, in all but name, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, for a family who, you know, was descended from Edward III, um, it's amazing how far that they came along the lines. Uh, The Seymour family to me is just fascinating. And I'm loving learning more about her because I've always 
had such a negative attitude about her just because of what I had read or experienced about her behavior towards Catherine, Catherine Parr. So I'm excited to, to hear this other side of her. And, you know, we just said she um, was a mother of many. She had these very talented daughters, but she also had a son who liked to get into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> uh, yes, he did. <laughs> the Earl and of Hartford, right? He did. And unfortunately, he set his sights on Catherine Gray, who's younger, whose older sister, Jane Gray, had, of course, gotten to a spot of trouble of her own. And Catherine and Edward married secretly during the reign of Elizabeth I. And when their marriage came to light, they didn't really get a lot of sympathy from Anne Seymour, at least not publicly. In fact, she wrote a letter to Queen Elizabeth, you know, basically saying, hey, I have nothing to do with this. I didn't know what these crazy kids were up to. Hmm. Of course, that doesn't really impress us, impress us, you know, from our point of view. But considering her background, her husband had been beheaded. Uh, Jane Grey had been beheaded. Uh, I think she's probably taking the cautious view in order to minimize damage and perhaps to also protect her son by letting other more powerful people look after his interests. It's amazing all that she experienced and went through in her life. And, and you can't even say it was a short life because she lived a long time, didn't she? She did. She, I believe that there's some, there's some discrepancy about her birth date. I believe now that she's believed to have been born in 1810. Oh, I'm sorry, 1810, 1510. You can see I've been working in the <laughs> 19th century. I believe a 1510. And so I'd say she was oh, probably about 80 or so when she died. Wow. And, you know, her, her children, her grandson also made a controversial marriage. Uh, he married a woman who was considered beneath him uh, socially and and didn't approve of this marriage either, although she did remember the groom and bride in her will. So, mm. so she did reconcile herself to that, apparently. Huh? I don't think I remembered that one. So thank you for bringing that up again. We're talking about the Earl of Hartford. So this is her son. This is when he was having his secret love affair with Catherine Gray, and they had children in the tower, essentially. Um, uh, in fact, the children who were born in the tower, they ended up in, in Anne Seymour's care. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. They did. Uh, and there's a, I came across this a few years ago, uh, but there is a rather amusing letter in which Anne is described as having her two grandsons come and read to her. And she comes across as very much, not exactly the type of grandma who would make you cookies. You know, she and <laughs> these were, these weren't young kids at a time. So they were commanded to come and to come in front of her and read her. I believe it's some theological work. And so I think she ruled them with a rather strict hand. <laughs> Just as we would imagine she would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So her husband, Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, was executed in 1552, which left her a widow. But there's a stint there where she was in the tower as well, wasn't she? Uh, she was. She was putting she was well, he was put in the tower twice. He was released the first time. And of course, the second time he was executed and she was put into the tower during the second time. This was when uh, John Dudley was acting as the protector 
or I forget he wasn't called protective, oh, yeah. called something else. The president anyway, of the council. He was basically uh, the man in charge at this time. And it was at this point that Anne was sent to the tower. And before that, she had tried to intercede to get her husband released from the tower. But she was actually remained in the tower until Queen Mary took the throne. And it was Mary released her from the tower. She and Mary had actually been friends, although their religious views were so diametrically opposed. It always surprises me what good of friends they were because they were on such opposite spectrums of religion. Uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. I guess it must have just been, I guess, you know, that a personal, personal attachment was enough to override religious attachment. Right. Although she did keep rather quiet during, during Queen Mary's reign, because it certainly wasn't a time for a Protestant to be, you know, making that much show of her religion. So even that, I think she raises, she could presume too far in that friendship during this time. And then she remarried at some point, too, didn't she? She did. She married a Thomas Newdigate, uh, Richard Newdigate, I believe. He had been one of her servants. And in this, she followed other duchesses who married down after their husband's ex after execution. Uh, Frances Gray, for instance, married uh, Adrian Stokes after her husband died. And Catherine Willoughby, who was, of course, a good friend of Catherine Parr, uh, she also remarried after her husband died. And so Anne Seymour's marriage, I think, was probably done for perhaps uh, partly from affection, but I think it also had a strategic aspect because by marrying a man lower in status, she was basically signaling that she did not want trouble. And I think during Mary's lane, it was rather important that a Protestant signal that she did not want trouble. <laughs> Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because uh, technically speaking, Catherine Parr also married down. So all of those women yeah. in that circle, I've never thought of it like that before. That's eye opening. Uh, so she remarried. And I do want to go back just a little bit because I forgot I wanted to talk to you just briefly about have you found in your research um, that little little baby Mary Seymour was sent to the Somerset's home at Sion until Thomas Seymour requested that she be placed with Catherine Birdie. Did you find anything about that? Was she there first? Uh, I believe she was. She seems to have been there for a short time. Um, and then Catherine Willoughby took over her care, which is apparently at both Thomas Seymour's wishes and as well as Catherine Parr's wishes. Now, Catherine Willoughby uh, wasn't really thrilled about this. I think, you know, she... I don't think her husband had left her with a great deal of money. So she had to, she was supporting this royal baby. And of course, a royal baby, even, even though, you know, it was Thomas, she was Thomas Seymour's daughter. Still, she had to have, as a queen's daughter, she had to have the proper retinue. And the retinue, I think the, their expenses were probably more than Captain Willoughby uh, wanted. So she wrote a letter, I believe it's to Cecil, uh, asking if he could intercede with the Somersets to get her more of an allowance. And I believe she may have, but unfortunately, uh, little Mary uh, seems to have died about when she was about two. And again, there's questions about her fate. I know there's a theory that she, she actually survived to adulthood. I find that very unlikely, but there is a theory out there. So in the end, 
Catherine was relieved of the expenses by the poor child's death. Right. What and that, you know, that has been a used, I think, as sort of against Catherine uh, Willoughby, but to show that she was hard hearted. But, you know, the I don't think there was that case. I think she was, you know, being realistic. She had all these yeah. people to support. You know, she had their horses to take care of, you know, all these all the expenses that came with maintaining all this retinue. And I think she was right to expect more compensation for doing so. And again, you know, this is an age where people tend to be rather hard nosed about money and property. And I think she was just, you know, looking out for herself as best she could. Right. Right. What do you think it tells us that the Somersets didn't fight to raise Mary. I mean, she was the daughter of the queen consort, the former queen consort. I, what do you think it says? Um, well, I guess it could be taken two ways. It could be said that they were simply following their, you know, the parents' wishes, or it could be that they simply weren't that fond of Catherine Parr and didn't want to raise her child. Yeah. I guess it, it I guess it depends on how you look at it. I think there could be some truth to both of those theories. I love to think about that stuff. (laughs) One of the things that I am curious about, because more recently you had mentioned that you've published a book or several books based in the 19th century. Your most recent one is John Brown's Women. I'm curious, what was your research experience like then in comparison to researching medieval or early modern? I have to say it's a lot easier for me. I don't, well, I took French in high school, but I did very badly at it. I'm amazed I got through it, as a matter of fact. And, you know, I've just, I know just a smattering of Latin. So it's difficult to, for me to research some of the records from the uh, 15th century. And, and of course, I'm here in America. So even the ones I can read, I have to access. But fortunately, you know, a lot of these records have been transcribed and translated and are available online now. But, you know, for a person like myself who doesn't have uh, any formal academic training in history, uh, the United States history is easier to access and to research, which sounds sort of wimpy, uh, be that as it may, it's just easier for me at this point to do it. Sure, it sounds lovely to me. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a much easier process. I am curious because everybody listening right now has some type of interest in Anne Stanhope, and there really isn't much out there on her as far as books go. Do you have any recommendations on where the listeners can go to learn more about Anne's life? Let's see. Well, Rita Warnicke, who some may know from her writing on Anne Boleyn, wrote a book called Wicked Women of Tudor in England. And there is a it's a very interesting book. There's a section on several women, including Anne Seymour. Now, if you look online, there are also a couple of shorter works on Anne. Susan James has a paper for online. I'm going to see if I can take a look for it. Okay, yes, Susan James, she wrote the biography of Catherine Parr, but she also has a paper online called Reputation and appropriation at the Tudor court, Queen Catherine Parr and Anne Stanhope, Duchess of Somerset. Oh, perfect. Well, I'll make sure to include a link for um, the listeners if they want to go check that out. 
So we have the Wicked Women book. We have the article by Susan James. Is there anything else? Uh, there's a master's thesis by a lady called Caroline Elizabeth Armbruster. Uh, it's called a woman, for Mer- a woman for Many Imperfections Intolerable, and Stanhope, the Seymour Family, and the Tudor Court. And those are the three main ones I know about. And it's interesting because if you read the paper by Susan James and the paper I just mentioned, they take a very different view of, of Anne Seymour. And the uh, Ruth Warnicke also takes a more sympathetic view of Anne than does Susan James. So it's interesting. You can get a, you know, I believe in looking at all sources and looking at primary sources. So I think you can get a pretty full picture of looking at all three of these wonderful it's about her i'm gonna go dig up that article and check that out myself i've i've read um retha's book on anne boleyn and i've read susan james's book on Catherine parr so this will help it all come together once i i read that why don't you let listeners know where they can find you and find your books okay well let me just push one of my books it's called her highness to traitor and it features uh francis gray and Jane Dudley, who were the mother and mother-in-law of Lady Jane Grey. And Anne Seymour is a major character. She's not the main character, but she certainly makes an appearance from time to time in the book. So, you know, there is that book. And I can be found on Facebook under Susan Higginbotham Arthur. And my website is the imaginatively named www.susanhigginbotham.com. <laughs> And your books are on Amazon, too, I assume. Uh, Yes, they are. Okay, wonderful. I will include the links um, to all of that for everybody in the show notes. Susan, thank you again so much for coming on. Hey, thank you.